Thanks. I'm going to tell you guys about uh, a book I'm currently reading. Um, it had been on my radar for a while. I, I, I listened to a number of podcasts, and uh, I listen actually to a wide variety of podcasts, uh, sometimes political podcasts, people from the right, people from the left. And this book kind of got on my radar because I heard people from like all sides of the political aisle talking about this book and recommending it. Um, and, and people on the left were recommending it, people on the right. I heard pastors recommending it, academics. Um, I saw an interview with the author, with, uh, with Pastor Tim Keller, um, which was a fascinating interview. Uh, there was a write-up about this book in the, the Gospel Coalition uh, website. And, and in fact, Russell Moore of the Southern Baptist called it the most important book in years. And so I thought, man, i, I got to get a hold of this book and, and, and check it out. Um, the book is called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Uh, the Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Haidt is a social psychologist at the New York uh, University School of Business. And he's interested in the book, he's interested about how people think. Um, more specifically, Haidt, Jonathan Haidt, he's, he would identify himself as a liberal. He'd identify himself as, uh, kind of on the left side of politics. Uh, he's a religiously atheist Democrat. And he started his book, he started this exploration in the sense of trying to understand why everybody who he talked to on the other side of the political aisle was so irrational. And that's how he, uh, that's what got him interested in this discussion. And he was, as he studied for this book and as, as he, um, as he wrote it, actually, he was, he was interested in this question of how people on the left and people on the right can, can talk past each other. Um, misrepresent one another, or in other ways think that each other is irrational. And it is a pretty cool, it's a pretty amazing book. But I want to start by kind of sharing a little bit of one of his conclusions. It's the first major conclusion in the book, because it's going to relate to what we're going to talk about as we get to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes today. His first major um, conclusion after he, does, he talks about all these major anthropo- anthropological and psychological studies he does across continents, age groups, and social classes. His first major conclusion is that people think differently. They, they process facts differently. They come to conclusions differently. Um, they argue differently. Not because they are irrational, but because... What, what, he, what, he, what his conclusion is, is that thinking is first and primarily an expression of one's deeper moral inclination. That's the whole point of his book. Is that, he calls that, he calls it intuition, but he talks about like the moral virtues and values by which we see life. And so I call this the moral inclination, I think is a, a, a maybe a, a more clear word. So, so what is what is first conclusion is how the heart is inclined morally influences what our mind accepts as rational and how we think. Let me say that again. How our heart is inclined morally influences what the mind accepts as rational. And the reason the reason why his book has caused such a stir is that for the last couple hundred years in, after the Enlightenment. 
we've kind of thought differently about how we think. We've, we've, we've thought in a sense that we as human beings are like these blank slates that almost using a computer model where we get data and then we process the data and then that data that we process in our blank slate kind of leads us to different ways of thinking and different ways of seeing the world. And what Haidt is arguing is that's not actually true. How the heart is inclined impacts how the mind thinks. And he provides scores of evidence that one's moral inclination precedes reason. For, for example, he, he sets up these psychological tests where he asks about whether or not you think something is wrong. And one of the ways he demonstrates his thesis that, that our heart inclination precedes our rationality is he, he puts these tests, and, and some of these tests are really interesting. The questions he asks are, I can't even say some of them here. Because they are so brutal that we would say, oh, and he, and he would, and that was the, that was the response he's looking for. He was looking for, why do you think something is wrong even when you can't explain why it's wrong? And when he found that phenomena that people would say, oh, no, that's wrong. And he'd ask them why, and they'd say, either, I don't know, it just is. Or they would, they would, they would frame it in such a way, their rationality would frame it in such a way that he had already shown them wasn't, wasn't the case. So, so what he was saying is we make our moral inclinations first and then our mind tends to justify what our heart and where our heart is already inclined. And I was thinking about that book as I reflected on this last passage in, in this book of all books. As we come to the end of Ecclesiastes, for, for Solomon, or in this, as we're going to see through this, through this passage, Solomon's referred to in the third person, so some people believe that another kind of later author or, or editor kind of compiled Solomon's writings. Doesn't really matter. However, this happened. The, the conclusion to the book of Ecclesiastes actually speaks a little bit of our thinking and how we think and the relationship between our thinking and our moral inclinations. So let me read. Oh, can you make sure that uh, this is the... There we go. Let me read the end of Ecclesiastes today. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, starting in verse 9, says this, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh." The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Heavenly Father, we pray that You'll bless the reading of Your Word today. Father, I pray that my thoughts... And my words today would be thoughtful, careful, delightful, and truthful. Lord, make an impact in our life through your word today. May it goad us, may it anchor us, may it guide us.
And may may it keep us and guard us, Lord. That we may fear you and keep your commandments. In your name we pray. Amen. Solomon, and through this last section of the book of Ecclesiastes, we basically come and discern two major truths that we're going to be looking at today. The first is this, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And secondly, that the fear of the Lord is the conclusion of the task of wisdom. Okay, so the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the, so it's, 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 the, it's the foundation of wisdom. And the fear of the Lord is the conclusion that wisdom drives us toward. The, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Therefore, as people who love and fear the Lord, we should be mindful of how our words will impact uh, we, we, we should, therefore, mindfully loving the Lord will impact how we seek, speak, and communicate the truth. And because the fear of the Lord is the conclusion of wisdom, mindfully loving the Lord will guide us into the proper worship in righteous living. It's kind of what we're going to be unpacking today. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the fear of the Lord is the end, the conclusion of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Solomon actually writes this. So, so we can't separate the process of the, we can't separate the process of writing this book, Ecclesiastes, which we've been going through this winter. We can't separate that process from Solomon himself seeking wisdom through the fear of the Lord. Twice in the book of Proverbs, also written by Solomon, uh, Solomon writes this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In Proverbs 9.10, he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Solomon understood that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of which all true understanding is based. In other words, Solomon knew before Jonathan Haidt that one's moral inclination influences our thinking, our understanding, our knowledge, and our wisdom. The inclination of our heart precedes rationality. If our heart is inclined away from God, we will not receive the things of God. And therefore, that which would be wisdom and righteousness and truth will seem to us to be foolishness, wickedness, and error. The inclination of our heart impacts our rationality. This is what Paul talks about in Romans 1. In Romans 1, Paul says that Although we are created by God, we neither worshipped God or gave thanks to God. But in our hearts, we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. We, we suppress the truth of God because we did not want to serve and to seek after this God. This is why it says, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the wisdom of God will seem to be to us, or to the one who does not fear God, the wisdom of God will seem to be foolishness. And so the orientation of our heart matters when reflecting upon the wisdom and knowledge of God. As you read the book of Ecclesiastes, your openness to Solomon's thesis at the end, fear God, here's the end of the matter, fear God and obey his commandments, your openness to that thesis will probably determine a great deal of how you'll think about the rationality of Solomon's argument. Height, Jonathan Haidt is right. Our rationality begins in our heart with our will. We will not receive which we are not inclined to believe. And so Solomon, 
or, or whoever is summing up at the end of this book of Ecclesiastes, he tells us a bit about this process of Solomon in writing the book of Ecclesiastes. And Solomon undertook his task as one who feared God. And he, he communicates his wisdom to us in four ways. And this is, this is my prayer at the beginning. I pray that my words today would be thoughtful, careful, delightful, and true. Thoughtful, careful, delightful, and true. If you, if you have an opportunity to communicate, and if you fear the Lord, may that be your prayer. That your words might be thoughtful, careful, delightful, and true. His words are thoughtful. It says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. He weighed and studied. The, the, the net translation of the Bible says he carefully evaluated. We've seen in the book of Ecclesiastes that Solomon has looked out upon all of life. And, and we actually have seen, particularly in chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, we saw many proverbs that Solomon had arranged together. And here he tells us he arranged together that with thoughtful reflection. He had weighed and studied. He had allowed or he had wrestled with the truth himself. As he made a new observation of life, it would sink deeply into the depth of what he had already considered through the process of reflection, meditation, reflecting on on, on that which he had already observed, and, and bringing it together, synthesizing and eternalizing it. Solomon was a thoughtful writer, and we've seen that as we've gone through this book. We live in a world that I think we're doing discredit to this process of thoughtful meditation and reflection. We live in a world of very simple Google answers. We live in a world of dinner conversations that can be solved simply through taking out our phone and finding the answer here. We live in a world that is so busy and bombards us with so much communication and so much information that we actually have to increase our skill in thoughtful reflection. Whether it's through through taking time, reflecting on the Word of God, thoughtfully, carefully, memorizing it, internalizing it. The, the good word, the old-fashioned word, is ruminating on it. Turning it over in your mind and in your heart. Right through the process of rumination and meditation, reflection, bringing it from just lightly landing on your forehead of your mind to sinking deep into your heart and developing convictions by which you live and, and, and see the world. Mulling things over. Taking times of silence and reflection as part of your life. Whether it's studying the scripture, whether it's even studying your field, your interest that, you're, uh, that you work in through, through, your, through your week. And bringing your Christian convictions to bear on even your profession or some of the... Um, or some of the ideas and thoughts that you come into contact with through your daily life. Solomon was a thoughtful communicator. Solomon, secondly, was a careful communicator. He, it, it says he arranged many proverbs with great care. He, he considered how best he should arrange his material in order to articulate it to others. So that's our prayers were communicated as Christians. First, that we'd be thoughtful, and then that we'd be careful. Uh, one of the ways that I think uh, I'm going to encourage you guys how you can become a careful communicator. Uh, one thing is, what you might want to do is try to teach children. 
When you teach children, whether it's uh, your own children, discipling your own children, or whether it's uh, helping out in Sunday school or something like that, when you have to take the complex truths of Scripture and articulate them to little kids, it helps you to be a careful communicator. You, you don't just want to be the thoughtful communicator, but you don't want to just give them the fire hose and the waterfall so they drown before you. You have to take hard concepts and to put them into, uh, into concepts that, that the simple can understand, that, that children can understand. It's one of the reasons why I think being a father or mother is a good practice for being a discipler. Right? Being a Sunday school teacher is great practice because you learn how to answer questions and the kids will ask you questions you never even considered before. And now suddenly that causes greater and greater reflection that you're doing on God's Word. Because you're saying, I never thought of that question, whether I'll be eating cheeseburgers in heaven. I don't know. And it drives you back to God's Word. And then you have to articulate that to these little kids. I love it. Every kid will do this to you. When they're three or four years old, every kid will come up to you and say, Mommy, Daddy, explain to me the Trinity. And try doing that without becoming a flaming heretic. Right? Try, try explaining the Trinity to a three-year-old. And you're going to learn how to articulate the faith, and you're going to learn how to reflect on your faith. Solomon, as he's writing the book of Ecclesiastes, he's thoughtful, he's, he's meditating, reflecting, weighing these Proverbs. He's careful in how he's arranging them. And here's the third one I thought this was interesting. He's delightful. He says he, he, he sought out delightful words. He's recognizing something that Jonathan Haidt recognizes in that book, The Righteous Mind, is that he's he's not merely trying to make an intellectual argument at all times. He's he's trying to to delight the people with the truth. It's become one of my prayer, even as I've been praying for Easter next week. My prayer for Easter next week, sometimes at Easter I try to make an apologetic defense of the resurrection of Christ. And my prayer for Easter next week is we might talk about some of that, but my prayer is this, that everyone who will come next week to celebrate the Lord's resurrection with us will see the truth of the resurrection of Christ as delightful. We'll see it as not only good news, but the best news. I've been reading another book by John Piper. It's called Expository Exaltation. I think that's what it's called. Is that right? And and Piper talks about this act of preaching, not only about being this means by which we are communicating truths of God, but, but, and and this is something I've been praying about, that as I preach, and as I teach, there may be times that, you know what, we just set aside this and we just worship. We just worship because our God is a delightful God. That, that, That our God gives us something to be delighted about because He is Good and he is great and he has done great things. So Solomon's writing, he's writing about his form, his, his words do not bore. I love this, this quote by Nathaniel Hoth, uh, sorry, not Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh, Thomas Wolfe. He's an American poet. He said, For all I have ever seen or learned, this book, Ecclesiastes, seems to me the noblest, the wisest, the most powerful expression of man's life upon this earth. It's the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth. I'm not given to dogmatic judgments in the matter of literary creation, but if I had to make one, I could say that Ecclesiastes is the greatest single piece of writing I've ever known, and the wisdom expressed in it the most lasting and profound. Man, doesn't that get you excited to go back and read it again? 
I have found that it's delightful. I've read Ecclesiastes as I've been doing my, my meditation, my ruminating. I've read it in different um, translations. There's one translation, it's more of a paraphrase, it's the NLT, but I, I, I listened to it a couple times, the NLT. Uh, I, loved, I loved how some of it caught some of Solomon's plays with words, and some of Solomon's humor in the Proverbs he write. And there's one time I was driving my son Caden home from school, and we're listening to the car, and I just started laughing. Because of, of how it brought out some of the humor and some of the delightful form of Solomon's writing. I think it was talking about uh, Solomon was being very skeptical about, about um, human government. And I, I, <laughs> the, the NLT translated one part of it. Um, everything is caught up in red tape and bureaucracy. And I thought, wow, that's, that's pretty, pretty to the point. But the, a, a greater point is not just about how Solomon wrote. It's about what he wrote. Solomon, as you know, and as we've talked, as we've gone through the book of Ecclesiastes, he has talked about the, the great theme of the book of Ecclesiastes is the chabel of life, right? That, that breath quality of life, that life is short, it's fleeting, it's perplexing, it's confusing, it's vexing. When you, ha- when you think you have it figured out, it slips through your finger. He talks about injustice and suffering and oppression and, and your boss not listening to you. And he talks about all this stuff of life that frustrates and confuses. And yet, through the whole book, at every concluding point of every phase of his argument, he comes back and he brings us back to this one theme, be joyful. Right? In chapter 9 where he says, I commend joy as a response to the perplexity of life. Eat, drink, love, work with joy. It's his conclusion, and he he keeps bringing us back to that through the book. It's delightful. I've said, as I've studied this book, I think there's no more life-affirming book ever written than the book of Ecclesiastes. And Christian, I'd ask you, not only are your words thoughtful, Not only are you taking time to think through the truths and letting them sink into your soul, and not only when you communicate are your thoughts careful, but are your your words delightful to the people you come into contact with? Are Are you, yes, seasoning your words with the salt of the gospel, but are you doing that within words of grace? How are you communicating your words? And finally, Solomon's words were truthful. Again, Solomon's never shrunk back from telling us about the harsh realities of life. He uprightly, uprightly, he wrote words of truth. He's not going to lie to us. That's one of the reasons why I think Ecclesiastes has been the favored book of so many people. Because he tells it like it is. He doesn't pull any punches in describing the perplexities of life. He tells us life is short, perplexing, harsh, and fair, unjust, and vexing. That's the way it is. I love that, the line in the movie, The Princess Bride, when Wesley says, life is pain, your highness, and anyone who tells you different is selling you something. It's kind of the outlook of this book of Ecclesiastes. He wants to tell us how it is, but he points us to hope. And so that's an amazing filter for all of us who wish to communicate truth, be it just as a parent to a child, as a Sunday school teacher, or as a, as a, as a friend to friend. You who know the good news of Christ, that's a good filter to think about our words. Are they thoughtful? 
Are they careful? Are they delightful? Are they truthful? Because truth matters. Truth is very important. Truth truth is very important, and Solomon tells us what truth does. How truth impacts those who fear the Lord. Truth is important. It does does certain things. The first thing truth does that Solomon brings out is that truth goads us. He says, the words of the wise are like goads. Solomon, as he's written the book of Ecclesiastes, has attempted to goad us. What's a goad? You're like, I don't know what a goad is. We don't know what a goad is anymore. A goad was a long pointed stick that somebody would use to drive cattle along. So why is it pointed? They don't like it, right? It hurts. And so you're goading, you're, you're driving the catalog with this long pointed stick. It's sticking in them. And, oh, I don't want to go there. And they drive and they go this way. And Solomon's saying that is what truth does. The words of the wise are like goads. That's what Solomon has been trying to do through this book. And, and in order to speak truth, that means that to speak truth is to risk offending people. To speak, to, to receive truth is to risk ourselves being offended. If true, if the truth is a goad, it will be at times that the truth will hurt. Right? That we, that we can't seek truth without it at times being painful. This is the, almost the exact opposite of where our culture is going. Our culture doesn't, Our culture has supposed the exact opposite, that, that if something is true, it must not offend. Right? If something is true, if we are offended, then that must not be true. And what Solomon is saying, no, 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 the truth is a goad. It, it will prick us, and it will point us, and it will hurt us, but it's the, way, it's the way that God will move us toward himself. He says, secondly, he says the truth settles us, or it anchors us. He says the truth are like or the sayings of the wise are like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. That the truth settles us. It, it anchors us. It gives us something to rest our minds on. And we talk about the idea that uh, we, we, we should have open minds. And I love, I think it was C.K. Chesterton that said, yeah, we open up our mind in order to clamp it down on something substantial. I, I love that picture. Like, you should have an open mind like you have an open mouth. Okay? Your, your mind should be open to receive, but it, when it, it shouldn't remain open. It should clamp down on something of substance. In his novel, The Great Divorce, C.S. Lewis tells of a man who spends his whole life in inquiry. He's a explorer of truth. And an angel brings him to the, the boundaries of heaven and says, I will bring you into this land not of questions but of answers and you shall see the face of God. So here's this man who spent his entire life in inquiry, his entire life proud of the open-mindedness of his mind. And the, the angel takes him right to the boundary of heaven saying, here is the land where you will have answers rather than mere questions and you will see the face of God. And the man says... Sadly, the man's not ready to let go of his quest. And he says that his mind must remain so open as to never fix itself upon anything. And he goes and returns and he leads a discussion group in hell. That's how the story ends. He says, I've got to go back. I've got a great discussion group I've got to lead in hell. 
The nails of truth must never be fixed for the inquirer. He says to travel, hopefully, is better than to arrive. But to C.S. Lewis, this was a great tragedy. It was a tragedy. He, he presents this story as if it's, it's a missed opportunity. And, he, and the Spirit answers, the conclusion is, if that were true, that, that to travel, hopefully, is better than to arrive, if that were true, how could anyone travel hopefully because there would be nothing to hope for? Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes understanding the despair of learning that goes nowhere. Think about chapter 2. The end of chapter 1 into chapter 2, Solomon says, he talks about that search that he was on. He says, when I applied my mind to discover wisdom, he said, it was vexing to me. It escaped me. And he said, at one point, it drove me to such sorrow that I wanted to die. Because the journey itself was not what Solomon was looking for. He wanted to arrive at something. And he does. The truth settles us. It is a good thing to have your mind open. It is a better thing to have it settled upon truth. The truth guides us. He says, the words of the wise are like goads. They are like nails firmly fixed. They are given by one shepherd. The ESV probably is right here in capitalizing the letter S. In understanding that Solomon is giving reference here to the Lord. That, that God was through him providing wisdom and guidance to his people. That, that even as Solomon was reflecting on his Proverbs with great care, with thoughtful reflection, God was moving in and through him to compile these collected sayings of the wise. Uh, Riken writes in his commentary, this is a really critical verse, uh, understanding for the, the understanding of the doctrine of Revelation. He writes, Ecclesiastes is the very word of God. The preacher's words are not merely the musings of some skeptical philosopher. They are part of the inspired, infallible, and inerrant revelation of Almighty God. Therefore, it's not enough merely to admire their artistry and respect their integrity. We must also submit to their authority. As the shepherd of our souls, God uses this book as he uses everything written in the Bible to prod us into spiritual action. And finally, the truth guards us. This was uh, probably for some of you guys who are studying for finals right now. This might be your verse for finals. This was my verse through university. I loved it. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. How many of you university students right now, that's your life verse. Of the making of many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. That's the, that's the verse. I had that verse memorized in university. Much study wearies the body. But Solomon is not saying that we should never expand our reading beyond, beyond Scripture, no. In fact, some of the Proverbs that Solomon writes in the book of Ecclesiastes and that compiles in the book of Solomon, some of those Proverbs are found in other non-biblical sources. Which gives us the assumption that Solomon's reading outside of Scripture, but when he finds truth and as he's inspired by the Holy Spirit to compile these books of sacred inspiration, Solomon has, has read and studied even more. So he's not saying that we should never expand our reading beyond Scripture, but we are warned to be careful when reading the multiplication of books and the wisdom of man. The Scripture alone is to be our sole 
authority, sola scriptura. But it's not our only source. But we're careful. This is probably a verse that should speak to our generation more, in our generation than probably any generation that's preceded us. The need for discernment. I don't know if there's been ever a generation on this earth that has had, there hasn't been, that has access to so much uh, technology, obviously, but so much information that is at your hand. You have access to countless terabytes of information every day. And what we need is discernment. We need to grow in discernment through that thoughtful reflection of the Word of God, weighing everything against the Scripture. The Lord is our shepherd who guides us in this. He goads us with the truth. He anchors us. He settles our heart and our mind on Him. He guides us as we seek to live and worship Him. And He guards us. He guards us through discernment. So we don't have to like go down every YouTube hole. Right? We don't have to. We don't have to be swayed by every book or article we read. We're settled on God's Word. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes as one who fears the Lord, one who's wrestling with wisdom. But then he gets to this conclusion. And this conclusion, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, or sorry, the fear of the Lord is the conclusion of wisdom. He writes, the end of the matter is this. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. What does it mean to fear God? So, sometimes it's, it's, a, it's a, I guess, a frightening kind of phrase to many people. In fact, I have this book called The Joy of Fearing God. And someone wrote in a review, when I first saw that title, I laughed. I said, how, how can there be joy in fearing God? But isn't that what the entire book of Ecclesiastes has been about? It's been a book of joy, and it's the book that has the conclusion, fear God. How can fear be joyful? And I, I liked how um, uh, Jerry Bridges in that book, The Joy of Fearing God, how he puts it. He says, the fear of God is better described than defined. I mean, I can define it. It means to acknowledge and honor God as holy, giving Him respect to His place and His power and His person. But he says, let's, let's describe this a little bit better. And I, I love, uh, he gives this description. He says, imagine, um, he imagined this young man in the military. And he gives this, this young man, he's a giant of a man. He was guard, you know, a big guy on the football team. And he goes into the military. He's strong and he's ready. I was talking to uh, Hannah Williamson, who did basic training last summer, and she was telling me she, she knew guys like this that just came in, and they were these big, strong guys, 18 years old, ready to go. And she said, man, basic training broke them. But you imagine this guy, he's a tower mountain of a man, but that, uh, he, he writes that, you know, he's learned by his drill sergeant, respect, honor, awe, and fear. Right? Sir, yes, sir. And he says, so one day at the end of basic training, the general comes in. And the general comes in, and the general is an older man. He's a weak, he looks like a weaker man. But none of that matters. Because the soldier is trained to fear and to respect those who are in authority. So he tells the story that the soldier graduates out of basic training, makes his way up the ranks, and uh, suddenly is uh, promoted to where he is actually the, 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 the chauffeur of the general. So he drives him around. Now he's in close proximity with the general. 
He doesn't say anything to the general. He does his duty, sir, yes, sir. But he's in close proximity to the general, and he's able now to understand a little bit more of what makes the general tick. He's understanding a little bit more of the general's character. And he sees that the general's not a fearful man in his in his presence, but he is a very respectful man and very admirable man, a very honest man, a very forthright man. He sees the love the general has for his uh, commanded troops. He sees the wise decisions the general makes. He, in fact, as they're driving, they begin to get to know one another. They begin to develop a rapport. They, they begin to be friendly with one another. And he finds he admires and respects the general, but he, but he still is always in this relationship of, sir, yes, sir. And so his, his fear has grown into, into admiration. And then he tells the third part of the story where the, 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 their convoy is being attacked and is how the general has actually risked his own life to, to rescue this lowly soldier. He, he sacrifices his own self, his own safety, his own life to rescue him. And he brings him out on his shoulders. And then he tells the story about maybe in the weeks after the general is visiting the soldier. Why would you visit the soldier? But he's visiting the soldier as he recovers in the infirmary. And the soldier is realizing that the general is not just fearsome, and the general is not just a man to admire, but he actually sees the general as a man who loves him. A man worthy of love. And he still, always through this whole process, keeps that relationship of sir, yes, sir. That fear, that awe, that respect, that admiration, that gratitude, that love. All of that compressed into this idea of the fear of God. That's what Jerry Bridges, that's how he describes what this fear of God is. It's understanding all of this idea. And so this is, this is how Solomon concludes this book. Here's the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God. And keep his commandments. I, I just kind of thought through and we wanted to reflect at the end of the sermon series. What, what has Solomon told us about what the fear of God is? In relationship to his theme in Ecclesiastes of what can be extracted from life. I got four just to end with. First, to fear God is to find the beauty in each moment. Right In chapter 3 particularly, this is where the heart of the first part of his argument came to a head, where he said, for everything there's a season, and there's a, there's a time for every purpose, for every matter under heaven. Later in the chapter, he says, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in his time. And Solomon's big point in that first kind of quarter of his book is that life is a breath. If you try to extract meaning, if you try to extract purpose from it, if you try to extract, you know, if you try to contain it so that it makes sense, it's going to slip through your fingers. It's a chasing the wind. But to the one who fears God, to the one who knows that God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes, we can face any trial in our life. We can face any season in our life knowing that God is in control. And we we can actually now see and seek to find the beauty in the moments that God gives us. Whether they're moments of excitement, moments of celebration, or moments of mourning. To the one who fears God, who trusts Him, who admires Him, who loves God, we can seek to find the beauty in the messes of our life. Secondly, Solomon has taught us (coughs) to enjoy all that God has given us as gifts from His hand. 
For to the one who pleases him, Ecclesiastes 2.26, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. In that whole last section, that commendation of joy, I commend joy for man as nothing better under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given under the sun. Go eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. For God, to the one who fears God, God is approved of all you do. Right? To the one who fears God, to the one who keeps God's commandment, we can receive all things in this life as gifts from His hand. Joyfully enjoying what He has given to us. It's all grace. It is all a gift. As the Apostle Paul says in the New Testament, what do you have that you have not received? It's all a gift. Third, He's taught us to apply our heart to know God. You can see there's been other times in the book of Ecclesiastes where he's talked about, and I applied my heart to know this. I applied my heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that's done under heaven. I applied my heart to know wisdom. I applied my heart to know wisdom. And each one of those times it ends in frustration and vexation. Until he says, as as Shane read us last week, until he gets to chapter 10, this is what you apply your heart to. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. You want something to apply your heart to. And the one who fears God, that is what we apply. That is what we use our energy. Because that is, we can't figure anything else out in this life. It's a vexation. It's a breath. Apply your heart to know God. And finally, the R, receive. Receive your lot as a gift from His hand. That's been a big theme as we've gone through the book of Ecclesiastes. I put some verses up here. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This he saw is from the hand of God. And I saw that nothing's better that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. And time and time again in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's talked about, we can't figure this breath of life out. It's a gift to be received, but God has given us work to do. Not just our vocation, but but all of the life that God has called us to. He's set this in front of us. He's put this in front of us as our hand to do that work. And we receive, we accept, and we receive that lot from God's hand. This is how we live in the fear of the Lord in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's been the, the main themes of his book. We find the beauty in each moment. We, we, uh, we enjoy the gifts that God provides for us. We apply our heart to know him and his ways and we receive our lot from his hand. We, 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 we set our hand to the plow to do that which he sets in front of us. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. The joy of fearing God. And so, we finish this book where we start. The end is where we begin. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the fear of the Lord is the conclusion of wisdom. And I just want to leave with one last thought. Why listen to Solomon? Why listen to Solomon? I believe that if you listen to Solomon, your life will be joyful. Your life will be contented. You will live under the hand of God with gratitude and gratefulness. I believe that you follow the words of Solomon. You will find joy in this breath and purpose in this breath and meaning in this breath. 
But Solomon leaves not with that encouragement. He leaves with one last warning. And the warning is this. The breath is going to be over soon. It will be over before you know it. And he says, when it is over, we will stand before a God of judgment. We'll be asked to call and to give an account for what we have done with the breath of this life. He says, this is the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God. Keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. A duty is not something you can shirk. This is something God has placed before each one of us as our duty. And when we die, when we stand before God, He's going to ask us, what have you done with that breath? Have you done your duty to fear God and to do what He says? For God, verse 14, will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And that ought to terrify us. Rightly, that ought to terrify us. Because when you stand before God and He asks you, what have you done with the breath of life that I gave you? Did you fear me? Did you worship me? Did you apply your heart to know me? How about the secret things of your heart? Did you fulfill the duty of your breath and all of the secret things of your heart? And when you stand before God and He asks you, why should I let you into my heaven? What will you say to him? See, this is where we can't take Ecclesiastes and think this is the only book of the Bible. Ecclesiastes sets us in the storyline of Scripture. And the storyline of Scripture will tell us that there is no one who will be able to stand before God holding our breath of our life in our hand and say, yes, I have perfectly completed and fulfilled my duty. We will not be able to do it. Yet praise be to God, He has provided a way. He's provided a Savior. And this is what we are, this is what we're celebrating this week. We're celebrating this week where Jesus resolutely entered into Jerusalem. Where He went in and faced, He said, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem. He must be handed over to the chief priests, the elders of men. He must be rejected. He must be scourged. And He must die. He was doing that as a Savior in our place. So that when we stand before God and God says, what have you done with the duty of your life? How have you performed your duty? We say to Him, we have not, but Christ has done it. He offered Himself His perfect life for ours. And defeating death in the cross, God rose him again from the grave. His life is no longer a breath. He offers eternal life to all who believe in Him as the resurrection and the life. He's our hope. He's our confidence. He's our reward. Uh, We have no other. This life will be over. For some of you, it could be over. Some of you guys are going away for the summer. I pray for you that God will keep you safe this summer until you return next fall. But some of you, it could be that I may not see you again. And so I would plead for you this morning, your life could be over in an instant. Fear God. 
Receive His provision in Jesus Christ. If you do not know Him, I would plead with you this morning. Turn to your Maker. Turn to your Savior. Turn away from this breath of life and receive eternity. Let's pray.